0: Assassin in the Water by James Knight. A family races to save their daughter's life after an outing to the local river goes terribly wrong. It is one of the world's most venomous creatures, Chironex fleckery, a species of box jellyfish living in northern Australian waters. Chironex is a hybrid of the Greek word chiro, hand, and the Latin nex, death. When fully grown, each of the jellyfish's sixty tentacles spread up to three metres. If it brushes against another living thing, some of the million or more capsules on the surface of each tentacle explode, firing out harpoons to inject a cocktail of venoms. These venoms can stop a human heart, killing a victim in minutes. It lives in the ocean, but can sometimes drift inland up rivers when water levels are low and currents slow. This silent marine assassin has claimed at least 64 lives in Australia since first reported more than 100 years ago. Ruth Macklin sped along the Bruce Highway in Queensland faster than she had ever driven in her life. With one hand she clenched the steering wheel of her partner's utility, with the other she pressed her mobile phone to her ear as she relayed instructions from emergency operators. Crucial minutes had slipped by since her daughter Rachel, ten, now lying across her partner Jeff Shardlow's lap on the back seat, had stopped breathing. Ruth had only one thing on her mind. Is our child going to die? It was just six days before Christmas 2009. The day had begun innocently enough, albeit with typical summer harshness. By mid-afternoon it was pushing 40 degrees Celsius and everyone at Ruth and Jeff's family home on Boyne Island, 530 kilometres north of Brisbane, was feeling in need of a swim or at the very least a change of scenery. The family arrived at the Calliope River camping ground at around 4pm. Some 23 kilometres inland from the ocean, the tranquil eucalypt-shaded setting was a popular spot for both locals and visitors. Grey nomads sat reading newspapers. Kids played games while their parents, with beers in hand, relished a quiet few moments before the holiday season really came alive. A dry spell meant no fresh water had flushed out the river system for about ten months. The water was brackish and more saline than usual, but jet skiers and clusters of splashing, laughing swimmers were intent on making the most of the cool relief. After tying the family's two dogs to the ute, Jeff and Ruth set up their chairs. Rachel, her brother Sam, 13, and his friend Lachlan stripped down to their swimmers. There's nothing dangerous in there, Mummy, Rachel queried. No, but don't go too far away, Ruth replied. The three kids hurried to the river with their boogie boards, while Ruth and Jeff settled down with glasses of wine. Their view of the youngsters was blocked by the riverbank, but the couple was reassured as Rachel's squeals of delight rang through the sweltering air. The kids pushed out towards the river's middle, some thirty metres from the bank. Sam, Lachlan and Rachel were just a metre apart and in waist-high water, when Sam suddenly felt a pain as though his left ankle and knee were being stabbed by glass. He reached down and pulled off a jelly-like mass, but before he could react to more pain, he was jolted by the sight of his sister's flailing arms and sound of her hysterical screams. Ruth leapt from her chair and sprinted towards the river as Sam hauled Rachel up onto his boogie board and, with the same surge of energy, propelled her towards the bank. Get this fish off me! Rachel screamed. Sam dragged his sister to a patch of sand at the water's edge, where an elderly couple had rushed to help. "'It's a box jellyfish! We need some vinegar,' said the woman, hurrying to her camper van. Ruth reeled when she saw her daughter. Rachel's left leg was almost entirely wrapped in tentacles. Tentacles were also wrapped around her right thigh and her stomach and left arm. Without thought for her own safety, Ruth frantically tried ripping the stingers off, but the harpoons held firm.' Then, in the fury of the moment, Rachel suddenly stopped screaming. Am I going to die, mummy? she asked softly. No, you're going to be okay, replied Ruth, but with growing uncertainty. The elderly woman returned with vinegar and paper towels, and as Ruth poured the vinegar over the tentacles, they released their grip on her daughter's skin. Ruth grabbed large handfuls of the jellyfish using the paper towels, but any relief was short-lived. Rachel was slipping into unconsciousness. Sam sprinted to his father, who was hurrying down the bank with more paper. Get the car! he yelled. By the time Jeff returned with the ute, Rachel's body had developed angry purple welts where the tentacles had been. Her face was pale, and she couldn't be woken in her mother's arms. Abrupt decisions were made. Sam and Lachlan would stay with the dogs and the elderly couple, and Jeff would drive to meet an ambulance while Ruth nursed Rachel on the back seat. Shortly into the journey, Ruth shouted... She stopped breathing! I can't do this! So they swapped positions and Jeff held Rachel while Ruth drove. As the ute bounced over corrugations, Jeff couldn't hold his fingers for long enough on Rachel's neck to find a pulse. He shouted at Ruth to slow down. Ruth shouted back. Panic set in. Jeff started CPR, an action he knew well. He was an environmental scientist who'd received first aid training at work. He'd performed mouth to mouth on accident victims twice before, but nothing prepared him for this. Crammed behind the front passenger seat, he supported Rachel's back and neck with his left hand while using his right to keep his child alive. One compression, two, three, four, fifteen. One breath. Had he muddled his count? Jeff didn't know. He knew he needed to focus on getting air into his daughter's lungs and to be careful that his compressions weren't hard enough to break bones. All the while, he was thinking to himself, "'This is my daughter.' "'We are going to Calliope Crossroads,' yelled Ruth over the phone to the emergency operator. They turned onto the Bruce Highway. It was another four kilometres before they'd be at the crossroads. Ruth put her foot flat on the accelerator. Near the crossroads, service station manager Joe Yellow was chatting with two customers when he noticed a ute shudder to a stop. A woman got out, shouting on her mobile, I reckon there's a blue happening there, Joe told customers Bob Heath and Leanne Burgess. Now the woman was waving her hands furiously in all directions. It's not a blue, said Joe. Something's wrong. He ran over with Bob and Leanne close behind. Jeff was all but exhausted. In the whirl that followed, Joe took over the compressions and Leanne stepped in to perform mouth-to-mouth. It had been thirty years since Joe had passed his bronze medallion life-saving certificate while Leanne, an ex-Navy servicewoman, had received extensive first aid training and had also passed a St John ambulance course. Stay with us, the service station manager pleaded with his little patient. Meanwhile, Ruth was still on the phone relaying instructions. You're doing well, she said with a wavering voice. Minutes passed before they heard the ambulance siren. Station officer Cole Purton was responding to a Code one callout: life or death. Within moments of seeing his patient, he had radioed back to Central Communications for antivenom to be collected from Calliope Ambulance Station by another ambulance. Time sprinted on, but all the while Rachel's condition deteriorated. Her face and extremities were blue, a sign she wasn't receiving enough oxygen. Just metres away, four-wheel drives, campervans, and caravans whistled past, filled with holidaymakers, oblivious to the drama that was on the brink of destroying a family. Cole applied a bag valve mask to ventilate his patient, while Joe continued the compressions. After two minutes, Cole found a weak pulse. Rachel was fighting hard, and soon her pulse strengthened and slowed, and her dangerously low blood pressure began to rise. Then she started to breathe by herself. Rachel was in the back of the ambulance by the time the anti-venom arrived and was injected into her arm and by the time the ambulance reached the emergency department at Gladstone Base Hospital, 20 kilometres away, Rachel was showing signs of regaining consciousness. Medical staff told Ruth and Jeff that Rachel needed to be placed in an induced coma to give her body a chance to counter the effects of a lack of oxygen. Otherwise, brain damage was a considerable possibility. In the small hours of the next morning, Rachel was flown to the Royal Children's Hospital in Brisbane, Two days later she was well enough to be taken off life support. She remained in hospital for two weeks, and in Brisbane for another month before she was able to go home. She recovered incredibly well, says her consultant Dr Fred Leditschke, who puts her survival and recovery down to the correct use of first aid and CPR. The heroes were Rachel's parents, who kept their daughter alive so that doctors could treat her, he says. By 12 months after the incident, Rachel was doing extremely well. She had very little scarring and no memory of the day she was stung. She likes playing netball and volleyball and dreams of being a chef or a teacher when she grows up. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia.